Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about Captain Bennick's miniature. We are delighted to welcome our guest, Emma Rutherford. Emma Rutherford is an art historian specializing in portrait miniatures and silhouettes, Formerly a director of the Silhouettes and Portrait Miniatures Department at Bonham's Auctioneers, she has also worked at the Victoria and Albert Museum and Phillips Auctioneers in London, and currently runs a portrait miniatures consultancy at Philip Mould & Co. London. Emma is the author of the art history book Silhouette, The Art of the Shadow, and has made several television appearances and advises the Antiques Roadshow. Among Emma's significant discoveries, she recently uncovered a lost portrait miniature of Charles Dickens, now at the Charles Dickens Museum. She also discovered a miniature of Mary Pearson, believed to have possibly been the inspiration for Lydia Bennett in Pride and Prejudice, which was acquired by Jane Austen's House Museum in 2020. Welcome, Emma. Thank you so much. Very nice to be here. Oh, we're looking forward so much to, to talking to you about Captain Bennett's miniatures. Before we dive into that, let's kind of set the scene a little bit. So we are returning to Persuasion this week, and very near the end of the novel, when Anne is with her family in Bath, as are pretty much all the other main characters in the book. In this scene, Anne and Captain Harville are having a quiet conversation, while Captain Wentworth is not far off, and he is writing a letter, you know, the letter. (laughs) (laughs) And so Harville opens the conversation by showing Anne a miniature. And so here's, here's the material from the book. Look here, he said, unfolding a parcel in his hand and displaying a small miniature painting. Do you know who that is? Certainly, Captain Bennock. Yes, and you may guess who it is for, but, in a deep tone, it was not done for her. Miss Elliot, do you remember our walking together at Lyme and grieving for him? I little thought then, but no matter. This was drawn at the Cape. He met with a clever young German artist at the Cape, and, in compliance with a promise to my poor sister sat to him and was bringing it home for her. And I have now the charge of getting it properly set for another. It was a commission to me, but who else was there to employ? I hope I can allow for him. I am not sorry, indeed, to make it over to another. He undertakes it, looking toward Captain Wentworth. He is writing about it now. And, with a quivering lip, he wound up the hole by adding, Poor Fanny. She would not have forgotten him so soon. So sad. So sad, poor Harville. So Emma, in the scene between Captain Harville and Anne, when Captain Harville is talking about this portrait of Captain Bennock, what is he actually talking about? What is it physically that people would be handling when holding a miniature? And can you tell us about the materials and craft that went into creating these pieces of art? So miniatures there's a sort of common misconception that they are like a sort of shrunken oil painting. But in fact, they've got a really very specific history. And the word miniature doesn't actually apply to the size. It actually applies to the technique and the medium. So the word miniature, instead of coming from the Latin minor, meaning small, it actually comes from the word minium, which is to paint with red lead, which was used in manuscript illumination. So Miniatures start in the 16th century, and their whole tradition comes from manuscript illumination, lovely little illuminated books, which is always watercolour on parchment. So 
The word miniature really refers to the materials and technique and not to the size, but eventually it comes to refer to these little intimate objects. And by the 18th century, these objects were painted on ivory as their support. So they're still watercolour, but they're painted on ivory. And they needed a specialist to paint them. Ivory has natural oils in it. And so to get watercolour, a water-based paint, to stay on the on the surface in itself is incredibly difficult. So ivory had to be sort of ironed between bits of greaseproof paper. It had to be rubbed with an animal tooth to get little nicks in it so the paint would sort of sit in. And it was a very, very specific technique that was really left to the professionals. And if you painted miniatures, you very rarely as an artist painted anything else. So the object that's in the hand I mean, miniatures at this date are around three inches high on a very, very thin sliver of ivory. They're watercolour, so they're incredibly vulnerable, which is why he's being asked to set it. He's being asked to get it glazed and set in a, in a locket. And the word portrait miniatures gives you a clue as well. They are 99% portraits. So how common was it for people to have miniatures in this era? I imagine that there was a certain amount of, like, cachet that went into these items as well as expense that had to be considered you know so who, who's having these what's the cost associated with these items Jane Austen would have grown up in a household where miniatures would have been everywhere everyone would have been commissioning miniatures and really from the middle classes upwards at this point in the in the late 18th century miniatures are are being commissioned by everyone apart from really the poorest in society so there's a kind of explosion in, in terms of miniaturists. There's no photography, so these intimate portable miniatures are, are really essential to people's lives. They're not just commissioned. For fun, they have a kind of practical element as well. So if members of your family in the 18th century emigrated, you would be left with a miniature of them to remember what they looked like. So Miniatures are everywhere and they're, in terms of costs, really at this date, they vary hugely. So at the Jane Austen House in Chawton, they've recently acquired members of the Digweed family who were neighbours of Jane's. And these miniatures, they're, they're not brilliant. <laughs> uh, they're, pretty <laughs> they're pretty basic. And they're painted by an artist called George Jackson, who... I think the Austin House Museum suggests that he's kind of cold cooling. So he's going around to people's houses. He's knocking on the door. Would you like your portraits painted in out? And you're left with something fairly average. And on the other end of the scale, you have Philadelphia Hancock, Jane's aunt, who is one of the the smarter members of, of the Austin family. She's lived in India. She's married someone very wealthy. She has a miniature that she commissions from an artist called John Smart, who is probably the most expensive miniaturist you can go to in London. So there's a huge range, but they still they still have a cachet. And their cachet is also partly social because you had a miniature commissioned for the first time in your life, usually when you are about to get married. You're about to move into a different social sphere. So... They work on all sorts of different levels. Well, and when you're talking about, you were talking about the the one who comes and does the digweed family's portraits. The door-to-door miniaturist. The door-to-door <laughs> yeah. miniaturist. I love this. <laughs> Would he be using the same materials? Is he still carrying around the, the small discs of, yeah, of ivory? Exactly. 
miniaturists, I guess, in terms of materials, they need these small discs of ivory. The paint was normally held in mussel shells. Everybody was eating mussels. They're really cheap food at this time. They're not quite how we (laughs) see them today. And everything can be really contained and and carried around very easily. Very portable then. Very portable. And a lot of miniaturists also travel from town to town for the season. So all the miniaturists who needed to make a living would kind of head to Bath at the same time. They would set up a studio, usually connected to a jeweller or someone selling sort of fancy goods like buckles or that kind of accoutrement. And to go and visit a miniaturist was a kind of part of the entertainment of being in Bath. A little bit like going to the kind of photo booth with your <laughs> girlfriends, you know, after a few drinks. So it was quite fun. But of course, a lot of marriage alliances took place during the season as well. And so miniaturists were kept very, very busy during this time. And I've seen some of the advertisements of miniaturists who are setting up the temporary studio somewhere like Bath as well. And they're working from seven in the morning oh, wow. till nine at night. I mean, they are, they're busy. So... But a, a lot of miniaturists are itinerant. Well, and, and you talk about these studios too. And of course, because it's such a small platform, I'm curious, is this something where, you know, you, you talk about the muscle shells. I'm just getting a great visual here of what, it, what it's like to go to one of these studios. Because the, the medium that you're, you're, you're painting on is so small, are they doing this through like magnifying glasses while they're, while they're painting? Like, is, are, like, are they hunched over? I mean, you're talking about these long hours and I'm just thinking like the physical toll of maybe doing these miniature paintings. Sure. Well... I had to have my own eyes lasered recently. You spent so much time focused on looking those, at yeah. these things. Yeah, 25 years. So I had some empathy for them. But yeah, so they would have a portable case that would have all the painting materials in, gum to mix with the watercolour, the shells to, to mix the paint in. The paintbrushes themselves were usually squirrel hair. And people talk about them having what a single hair to get this tiny, tiny detail, but they didn't. <laughs> they were fat coming to a fine point otherwise they wouldn't have held any paint but yeah selection of these small brushes and then the sort of portable box which would contain all of this would then have a slope that would come out and then you would place the ivory on the slope to keep it steady and then paint there and they certainly used magnifying materials as well to get get the details but I mentioned Philadelphia Hancock being painted by an artist called John Smart. He produced really the most detailed portraits of the 18th and early 19th century. I mean, you really didn't want to sit to him if you had anything that you didn't want showing (laughs) on your face because he put every wart, every line. I mean, amazing detail, but he was also brilliant with fabric. So you can tell if something's velvet or satin or just amazing. But he took so long uh, painting miniatures that he would do a sketch first, which is very rare. Most miniaturists paint directly onto the ivory. So it was quite a fast process because people got bored. And the other thing is the watercolour dried immediately. So you could take it away with you. Whereas if you sat for an oil portrait, oils take weeks to dry. So they're a much more immediate thing. I mean, they're, they're kind of the precursor to photography in that respect. Although another interesting point is that because miniatures were more ephemeral than oil paintings, people tended to wear their most fashionable Ah. outfits. So you get some really interesting looks that you don't get in an oil painting because oil paintings, they're on the wall for posterity. Miniatures, 
you hold them in your hand and they're really initially usually for your husband or your wife. And a lot of people who were getting married in this period, they're teenagers. You know, they want to look really cool. <laughs> so they're wearing like the latest, whereas often mothers, mother-in-laws get painted at the same time by the same artist. They're wearing fashions that are kind of 20 years old, where they're kind of stuck in their youth. It's really fascinating. And miniaturists also captured things that we never see in oil paintings. So, for example, we know from advertisements that when people powdered their hair, so when Austin's first around in the 1770s, all, all through her youth, she would have seen people with powdered hair when it was very fashionable. So you could buy pink powder, yellow powder, blue powder, powders with smell. Oh my gosh, that's great. <laughs> and in miniatures, you get people with pink hair. You never, ever see it in an oil painting because this is the height of fashion, but it's they're probably thinking this might be out in a few years' time, so I'm not going to risk it in my oil painting. This is the height of fashion Instagram photo. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. No, it's so fascinating. I mean, it's such a different aspect, I think, of people than you get in the, in the oil paintings. You mentioned John Smart, who would actually do a sketch before completing the miniature because he took longer. So for these more itinerant, you know, door-to-door miniature portraitists, how long did it take them? Were they just kind of dashing it off? I think some of them only took an hour. Oh, wow. Okay. Some of them you would have to come back for several sittings, but it really depended. I mean, you kind of got what you paid for. It's a little bit like today. There was a huge variety by the end of the 18th century. But you could find somebody who was like, oh, yeah, I can do your entire portrait in an hour. No problem. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you paid (laughs) a lot less for that. So going back to Captain Benick, he originally commissioned this portrait that we have mentioned of here in Persuasion for his then fiance Fanny Harville. So this is obviously a highly personalized object. And you talked about this a little bit as something that people would have done right before their marriage. But could you tell us a little bit more about miniatures as love tokens and how they related to courtship in this era? Sure, yeah. They're very, very integral to to courtship. And they are part of the sort of uh, the commitment, really. An exchange of miniatures is really very much part of the formal courtship at this point. We were talking about the physicalities of of the miniature earlier. If you turn a cased miniature over uh, from the late 18th, early 19th century, you would often find a lock of hair on the back. So they don't only encapsulate the face of somebody that you are going to marry. They also have physically a bit of their body <laughs> almost there as well. So miniatures are, are quite three-dimensional objects in that in that respect. Miniaturists would hand the miniature over to a, a jeweller who would be used to getting these locks of hair and setting them beautifully with a little few pearls and, and a bit of gold cord and that sort of thing. So they're unbelievably intimate objects. And I guess you know, I'm, I'm a specialist in antique portrait miniatures and I look at them, but I have to remember that when they're first commissioned, there's only three pairs of eyes who are really meant to see this object. So the, the artist, the person who's commissioned it and the person who's receiving it. So the Benick story, it really plays with that idea because this is a miniature that has been commissioned for somebody and it's being repurposed 
some real regifting vibes happening here. <laughs> exactly. And it it's just so clever the way that Austin uses that miniature in that way because she would have known how emotive miniatures were if she had been given a miniature of someone she was in, in love with. It would have become Austin's most treasured possession. I mean, it, if you were in love with them, that is. <laughs> Plenty of cases where perhaps, uh, yeah, you might have <laughs> turned it face down. <laughs> But yeah, we have lots of uh, of wonderful examples of people fainting when they first are given the miniature of the person they love you. And I guess with miniatures, when you go back to the 16th century, they had a kind of an almost sort of mystical quality about them. So miniatures were were thought to actually represent the person in body. So when, for example, somebody went to war in the Tudor period and, and you were left with their miniature, it was like they had left, literally left themselves with you. And miniatures were used to, as kind of stand-in proxies when people were signing documents and things. If there's a miniature of the person there, that was as good as the person being there. So they're much, much more than just an image. They are the most emotive type of portrait and almost the most emotive object of this period. Because of that intimacy in the miniature portraits. Was the style of posing at all different from what you would see, like if you were getting a traditional oil portrait done? Like, I don't know. Not, I'm not trying to say that they were like racy or anything. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, they are. <laughs> well, this, this period, you do occasionally get a few racy ones, but I mean, the main focus is on the face. So they're usually bust length because this is the kind of area that I guess you want to be focused on. And, but I mean, there's also a very strange fashion, very short-lived fashion around this period, late 18th, early 19th century, where people would just have their eye painted. I mean, they're quite unnerving, but they are really fascinating. And they're, again, this intimate idea that only you would recognise the eye of the person you're in love with. And it's also kind of plays into how people wore these objects, because they're often cased in a closed case, so it was up to the person who owned the miniature, who they showed the image to. They had control over the image, whereas with oil paintings, you can have a whole crowd of people around them. This is something you're wearing on your person. So if you want to show somebody, you can. If you don't, you can keep it hidden. And the eyes you could wear outwardly because no one would necessarily know whose eye it was. So there was there's a bit of a game there as well. But I have... I have seen portrait miniatures as well of just breasts, for example, uh, from this period. So, there, so there's, yeah. a, there's a range of possibilities. <laughs> there's a range, yeah. What a fun identification game. Uh... <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> we might want to leave that there. I don't think Austin had, yeah, probably came across. That's not what Benick is getting set at here is like one of those kinds of pictures. <laughs> I don't think so, no. <laughs> Well, and, and you started to talk a little bit about, about settings. And that actually brings us back to the text, yeah. too, because Harville is, has been commissioned by Benick to have the miniature, and he says, properly set for another. So yeah, what, what is this proper setting? Because there's a lot of possibilities for these kinds of settings, right? So the setting is also, because miniatures were worn at this period, the setting is really important. And again, you've got a huge range of different settings and different values. So the Digweed family are set, they're in their contemporary frames, which are papier-mâché frames with a gilt metal frame directly around the portrait. 
and a little gilt metal hanger. So the, the intrinsic materials are very inexpensive and relatively mass produced. And the miniatures themselves, probably the artist bought the discs of ivory from, from an art supplier and they came in a fairly standard size. So the more expensive miniatures or miniature settings rather are usually jeweled. So Philadelphia Hancock's miniature has diamonds around it and is in a, a gold setting. So that's the most expensive type of setting. But yeah, I mean, that I think if you were given somebody's miniature and it's, and it's set in a beautiful gold locket, they often have glass on the back or enamel or a lock of hair under glass. And then the borders can be pearls or diamonds. Or I mean, they're, they're really exquisite objects, but you would probably feel that you were perhaps more valued if the miniature of your loved one you were given was set beautifully in expensive materials by Gajula. So do you think then, and I realise that this is a certain amount of speculation, when Bennett has his miniature painted, would that be something that you would immediately get glazed or would you wait? wait? Because it's just kind of open. If it's just a watercolour, it's open to wear and tear at that point. And he's saying, okay, I have to have it properly set. Is that when you would put the glaze on or would the glaze come earlier? Like what's... No, the glazing you would do at the at the same time as making the gold okay. locket. But so probably when the miniaturist painted it, he would have wrapped it in paper to protect it. Because as you say, sneeze on it and it's mm-hmm. kind of gone. <laughs> it might have given him a rather yeah <laughs> odd look. So yeah, they're really vulnerable when they're not glazed. But no, I mean, you, you could have protected it in the meantime. And is it possible to do like a setting for it with the glaze and the, and the frame and then have it reframed and reglazed? Is that what they're referring to? Is that probably what's happening? I would think if he's brought it with him from the Cape, it's probably just gotcha. the miniature okay. itself. We know that a lot of artists uh, in the 1780s and 90s set up in India and miniatures were really popular. So British miniaturists set up in India and we know that a whole load of French jewellers also moved to India at the same time to be there to set the miniatures. So it's it's possible that getting the miniature painted on the Cape, there's not anyone who can who can set it there. So it's got it's got to come back. As a follow up to this discussion of Bennett's miniature and having it set, is it weird or socially gauche at all that he's basically regifting this? He's asked his deceased fiance's brother to prepare this for his new fiance. Was that a common thing to just kind of like, oh, this was intended for somebody else, but congratulations, it's for you now. Yeah, I think it's a really big ask actually, but it's it's a little bit probably like being asked to be the best man to someone where you're in love with the woman they're gonna marry or something like okay. along those lines. So it, it's an added bit of drama, which is so brilliant, of course, because he's also being kind of pulled into their relationship in a way that is really inappropriate because he's being given access to something that's going to be looked at, probably kissed every night before she goes to bed. You know, it's such a a special thing to be asked to do. You you know, you should be honoured to be involved with this, but obviously it's unbelievably awkward (laughs) in this context. I think it's one of those things he couldn't say no. You don't want to be churlish about it. No, exactly. I mean, it would have been really boring if he'd asked anyone else, surely. Sure, right. (laughs) The dramatic payoff isn't there if someone else is doing it. (laughs) Yes, yeah. You mentioned at the start of the 
in my introduction that I discovered this miniature of Mary Pearson, who was engaged to Austen's brother and to Henry. And in that is a really interesting story because Jane Austen is asked eventually, I mean, they're, they're engaged for a really, really short period of time. And eventually Jane herself is asked to be the person to give back all of Henry's letters to Mary Pearson. So she's she's in quite an awkward position herself there. It just sort of shows how difficult these these courtships were when they ended and the kind of fallout was pretty significant, not just for the couple, but for the whole the whole family. And at the start of, of Henry's engagement to Mary Pearson, Cassandra and Jane are really involved and, and really opinionated about it. Austin having opinions? Uh, <laughs> I'm afraid so. Yeah, I mean, she's, uh, she's not very kind, actually. She talks about Mary Pearson's picture, which was almost certainly a miniature because of their social standing and because of, of the type of portrait that would have been commissioned at this stage. And it's possible that she's going to be returning home with, with Miss Pearson, who's Mary Pearson, who's just got engaged to Henry. And in her, in her letters, she warns Cassandra, pray be careful not to expect too much beauty. <laughs> I will not pretend to say that on first view, she quite answered the opinion I had formed of her. Mother, I am sure, will be disappointed. From what I remember of her picture, it is of no great resemblance. So Austin saying, you know, Mary might come home with me. And we've all seen her miniature because Henry's obviously handed it round saying, you know, look, guys, I'm engaged and here she is. And she's not matching the, the miniature that he's showing. So <laughs> it's a little bit like when you see someone's Instagram and you meet them in real person in the in the supermarket and you're like, oh. She had the glow up <laughs> filter put on her picture. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I guess, I guess miniatures were like a kind of a filter because although, as we've seen in the quote before, you know, that the person in the miniature is immediately recognisable as they should be if a good miniaturist has painted it. But they're also, they have got the filter. They, they do want to look their best. So um, it's a really interesting insight into the reality and what that meant and, and commentary on, on appearance and portraits. I'm curious now if, because you've said that miniaturists were sort of everywhere and it was easy to get one done, if Benick just looks really, really good in this one, it's like, wow, I look <laughs> yeah. so hot. This is the one. Yeah. I'm not going to get this redone. I have never looked better. Quite possibly. He's probably got a bit of a tan and yeah. He's got the perfect windswept hair. He's looking very <laughs> exactly. handsome. And there's the whole men in uniform thing as well. I mean, I still have people buying miniatures today. You know, these people have been dead for a few hundred years, but they're like swooning because <laughs> they're in, you know... They just look gorgeous. But that's that's another side of miniatures, I guess, is this period, you know, Jane's living through a, a time of genuine threat and genuine threat of invasion of the British Isles. And so there are a lot of men in uniform around, including her own brothers. And so many miniatures exist of men in uniform because they're going off to fight. They may never return. This might be all you ever have of them. So, so there's another kind of, aspect of a sort of poignancy there with miniatures. When you had mentioned too, with especially with, with Austin and, you know, her, her brother's fiance, and then the breakup and the fact that they're having to like, <laughs> return all the items. Um, and I love, I love that you mentioned that there's yeah. this the family that's involved with this, because it reminds me too of, in Persuasion, 
you know, the fact that Bennick has been staying with the Harvilles and he's fallen in love with Louisa Musgrove at the Harvilles. So the Harvilles are like right up in this business. They're watching this happen. It's got to be such an awkward family situation all around. And then the fact that Bennick's like, yeah, go, go get this miniature set for me. And Harville's just like, oh, man. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think Jane had herself had some experience of that. You know, the whole family are, are very, very involved with this engagement. And they're very embarrassed, really, with how quickly he breaks it off. And they don't seem to like her very much, uh, Mary Pearson. And the idea that she might be the inspiration for, for Lydia Bennett comes from the fact that her father, Mary Pearson's father, was in the army and the family were obviously stationed with him and they, he was looking after this these troops, one of whom was, was Henry Austin. And she obviously fell for the man in uniform. Those and, uniforms, man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you can't blame them. But I think that, you know, Lydia, there is a sense that, that she's just this sort of young, impressionable, not really getting to know somebody properly, and Henry and, and Mary Pearson get engaged incredibly quickly. But the whole family are, are commenting on, on Mary Pearson's appearance. And uh, Eliza, who has good reason to comment, says uh, she's a pretty wicked looking girl <laughs> with bright black eyes, which pierce through and through. And you look at this miniature of this poor girl who, I mean, if you can go on the, the website of Jane Austen's house at Chawton, there's, there's the image of it there. And and she is the sort of archetypal Austin girl. She's got kind of cute cropped hair and then she's in the little white dress and, and she's just, she's gorgeous and sort of, she doesn't look wicked at all. She looks really calm and sensible. And, but even the family, the Austin family moved to Southampton much, much later. And embarrassingly, Mary Pearson is still not married and Jane says, the only family we can't call on around here are the Pearsons. Oh dear. So even, I think this is like 10, 15 years later, they still can't engage with because of the embarrassment of, of what's happened. So, yeah, <laughs> so much drama. Well, and, and Austen uses miniatures in her other novels. And, you, you know, you were mentioning Lydia. Um, and so in Pride and Prejudice, we actually also have miniatures. We have Mr. Darcy and Wickham have miniatures at Pemberley that Mrs. Ren Mrs. Reynolds is showing them. There's that whole like, ooh, doesn't he just look so handsome? Yes. But there's, I mean, there's multiple other references too. There's, you know, in Sense and Sensibility, we get Lucy Steele actually pulls out a miniature of Edward to basically like taunt Eleanor. Like, oh, is this the Edward that you mean? And, and you know, Lucy, and she's like, <clears throat> yes. Yeah. What are you doing with this miniature? Yeah, exactly. And then Emma, obviously she tries, she tries miniatures though never really completes one. But in any of these additional contexts, why do you think Austen chooses to, to forward plot points with miniatures like, like this in these, in these moments? Well, I think the Emma Woodhouse is kind of multifaceted, really, because Emma, she doesn't need to finish anything. And you can kind of see her sitting down with a piece of ivory and thinking, this is just too difficult. I don't have to. I'm not a professional. No one's paying me for this. And if I can't do it, no one really cares. So I think there's a social thing there that, you know, she doesn't, she's not being paid to do this. This is very much just a lady's accomplishment. So she's kind of making that point. But she's also, I think, making the point how difficult art is. I mean, it's not something that everybody can do. 
and Emma Emma's talents lie elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, they even if I sit next to someone at a dinner party and say, oh, "Okay, I'm a specialist in portrait miniatures," most people are just completely blank. They just don't know what they are. Whereas Jane Austen and her world miniatures are are so central to it. They're they're central on on just so many levels and she would have been surrounded physically by them and they're an obvious thing to pull in as plot devices because people knew what they meant they know how important they are and they know they give you that emotional jolt because you can pull them out they're not just sitting on the wall you're not walking past them there's something that's revealed and you've got to get really close up to it as well and people would have known that they would have understood the physicality of the miniature and what it meant and being held in the hand and take it away or you can you can show it but yeah it's the perfect uh, plot device really and and I, and I love knowing this additional information about miniatures cuz like when i read in sense and sensibility when i and when i read that lucy Steele pulls out a miniature on the surface i know that that is a demonstration of a certain amount of intimacy with with edward ferris but knowing now that that's you know the amount of work that goes into creating it and then setting it and the very real intention that goes behind giving that to someone, I think that makes that scene for me come to life in an even more vivid sense. You know, which is like, here's my picture of Edward Ferris, and Eleanor has to just straight face this, like she just didn't get punched in the gut. You know, yeah, she would have definitely felt punched in the gut. Knowing again how intimate these objects were, that really hammers home how much that was a power move on Lucy's part. Yes, totally. Yeah. It's not like, oh, this is just, you know, I cropped this out of his high school yearbook. It's like, <laughs> I have his miniature. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think with, with the Darcy Wickham miniatures as well, I mean, that they probably would have been really fantastic miniatures because they would have been commissioned from the best people. And, and that probably would have been a, you know, a bit of a, punch in the stomach as well to see to see those because it's as I said like having the person there but it's also perhaps imagining being the person to hold that miniature be given that miniature because you were going to be engaged to that person readers might at the time have thought have gone along that little flight of fancy that she might have had that one day maybe I'll be the person holding that miniature because I'm I'm betrothed so but obviously also it's it's a way of showing the family's wealth and good taste. And it's miniatures were, were also in terms of, of genders. I mean, the, the other way that miniatures are exchanged, I mean, men exchanged miniatures to signify close friendship and women exchanged miniatures to, to signify close friendship. So it's it's not just at the point of engagement. If, if you were wealthy enough and you wanted a miniature of your best friend, that was very often something that was commissioned as well. I have one other just like totally random question. You had mentioned, you know, and we, and we talked about Emma painting, and you said that that was kind of a ladylike accomplishment. Were there a lot of female miniaturists? Is it like just an accomplishment or is it like people could make money with, women could make money with this? This was an area of portraiture where, where women could really make money and compete with men on a, on a relatively okay. even playing field. Because painting a miniatures, as I talked about you know they had this little portable painting box with a slope that would come up and and if you think about painting a miniature at something that's only three inches high for women it didn't mean these making these great movements with a big canvas and smelly oil paints and 
needing an enormous studio. And the main problem for female miniaturists was the sort of the intimacy of, of a man sitting for his portrait and having to look very closely at somebody's Yeah, face. that's very intimate. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that was always slightly problematic. And you get kind of Rowlandson caricatures of, of really, really ugly men kind of leering at female miniaturists. Oh, and uh, But no, it's there are a lot of excellent female miniaturists. And in fact, at the Austin House, there's, there's a miniature by an artist called Anne Mee that would not have been a surprise to Austin that some, a member of her family was painted by a, by a professional female artist. Well, Emma... Are there any other kind of final thoughts on miniatures of this time that you feel like our listeners should be aware of or should take away? Austin just uses them so brilliantly. The only thing that really riles me is in any TV or film adaptations. They're always so badly painted. (laughs) I kind of want to say, like, come to me. I can give you the real thing. I've got the good props. Come on. Yeah. (laughs) They're always dreadful. But yeah, I mean, it's they're just, for me, they're so... They're so wound up in in Austin and romance and appearance and marriage. And yeah, they really, they're everything. Thank you so, so much for joining us today. This was an absolute delight. Can you tell our listeners where they can find you online and follow along with your adventures in miniatures? So my Instagram is Emma Rutherford, I think with some dashes. <laughs> but... Uh... <laughs> I'm sure you'll find it. The miniatures that I I research are at philipmold.com. So if you want to see a very nice range of miniatures, that's a a good place to look. Uh, Have a look at the collection at the Victoria and Albert Museum online as well, which is the British National Collection, and see, I think you'll you'll spot some Austin characters there. Well, thank you again. Thank you. That was so much fun. Thank you again to Emma for joining us today. And if you are curious to see some examples of miniature portraits, you can head to her Instagram, which you can find at underscore Emma underscore Rutherford. You can find us on Instagram at the thing about Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can also check out our website, the thing about Austin and email us at the thing about Austin at gmail.com. And stay tuned for our next episode, where we'll be talking about Lydia's trip to Brighton. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.